Hello and welcome to the Paranormal or What podcast with me, your host, Michaela Ford. How's your week been? Hard? Tiring? Well then, come in, draw up a chair, put your feet up and pour yourself a drink. Let me tell you what's been happening in the world of the paranormal this week. In tonight's episode, we have an interview with Craig Bryant. Craig is a paranormal investigator, author and podcaster who hails from Accrington in Lancashire. And what an interview it was. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Craig. Um, and I wondered whether, to start with, you'd just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and how you became interested in the paranormal. Okay, well, thanks for having me on, Michaela. It's, uh, it's really great to talk to you. Um, yeah, my name's Craig Bryant. I live um, in a place called the Ribble Valley, which is in, in Lancashire, in the northwest of England, um, very close to a, um, a famous hill called Pendle Hill. Um, and Pendle Hill is well known for uh, the Pendle Witch Trials of 1612, which is a, a whole story in itself. Yeah. Um, I became interested in the paranormal really from an early age. Um, my maternal grandfather <laughs> used to used to tell me ghost stories when I was when I was a um, a little boy. Um, oh, we used to <laughs> we used to sit in front of it was. Um, it was one of the old fashioned range cookers. This was, this was going back to sort of like the early 1970s, you know, cause yeah. I'm getting, I'm getting on a bit. Um, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> and, and, it, and it was, it was before um, North Sea gas. Now I don't know whether, I don't know whether people will remember, but in the early 1970s, a lot of the old um, mill workers houses were, were still, um, you know, had coal fires and, and range cookers and. Yeah, houses. I remember outside toilets you're from Halifax aren't you so I am yes yeah it it was it was it was all the same wasn't it um and so this this was at the point just before all these range cookers were ripped out all these gas fire um all these gas fires were put in 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 the place so we used to sit in front of the range cooker in in the back of the house it was a it was almost like a two up two down terraced house you know the the old-fashioned terraced houses that um that, that you had in those days and yeah. my granddad used to love telling me stories he just used to sit there um we'd have uh toasting forks we're making toast you know with the toasting yeah. forks um and he'd just tell me ghost stories and he'd, he'd tell me lots of local legends he'd tell me um about the ghosts that used to haunt the um the canal the Lee's Liverpool canal near where he lived um, he'd tell me about, um, you know, boggarts, which were like mischievous spirits or sort of poltergeist, really. Um, yeah. Boggarts is obviously more of a sort of, um, it, it's a northern word for a sort of mischievous spirit. So my interest in the paranormal went all the way back, really, to when I was when I was a young child. And um, it sort of stayed with me, really, until, um, until I sort of uh, became a, a teenager and then of course you start thinking about other things um and it wasn't until I was sort of in me it will have been my late teens um when I had um a paranormal experience which um 
was was the sort of first um, experience that I'd had. Um, but it wasn't until quite a few years later that by doing research and, and by listening to um, paranormal radio shows, such as uh, the one that I really started to listen to a few years ago was um, The Unexplained with Howard Hughes. Oh, on, yes, yeah. On, on radio. Uh, and I've been a guest on there for him a couple of times. Wow. Um, he was talking about um, shadow people um, and this this phenomena that, that, you know, people call the shadow man. So a very long, tall, thin, um, shadowy figure that people see often wearing a hat. Um and this prompted this uh, a memory of, of this um, experience that I'd had when I was uh, when I was back in my late teens. And basically, what had happened was I was I was working at um, uh, a club. It was um, the Accrington Conservative Club. Now, I, I've I've written a book. Um, I wrote a book a couple of years ago, and it's still yes. I'm going to ask you about that. Yeah. Still, still there. So, so the main story is this, this shadow man figure, which I saw. Um, and basically what happened was I was, I was working in this particular uh, club, um, working behind the bar. And it was, it was an old late Victorian building. Unfortunately, um, about five or six years ago, it, it succumbed to arson. It, the, the building was empty um, and it, it succumbed to arson and it burnt down. Um, and the, there's there's a lot of stories about how this happened, um, but you know, not notwithstanding the fact that there are a number of planning permission um, requests gone in uh, since it's miraculously burnt down yeah. uh, to build flats and things like that. It's prime building land in in the centre of of Accrington. Uh, now, Accrington, by the way, is for those people that don't know, is um, a, a it's a mill town. It was a mill town, um, cotton mill town in East Lancashire. So um, very old town uh, going back to um, about the 12th century, something like that. Yeah. But am anyway. I, am I um, right in thinking they've got a football team called Accrington Stanley? Indeed they do. Indeed they do. It, yeah, that's I, I, It just reminded me there's an advert that I never <laughs> forgot uh, with this little boy going, I yeah. hate Accrington Stanley. <laughs> well, if you drink your milk, then you'll be able to, you'll be better to play for Accrington Stanley or something. Oh, yeah. Like. And he goes, who are they? But I know. They? <laughs> yeah, I know. So, yeah, that's what most people um, think of is synonymous with, with the town. But actually, you know, Accrington's got um, uh, a lot more history to it than that. And they do actually make, just going off topic a little bit, and I apologise for this, that's they do cool. actually make the best house bricks in the world. Really? Um, there is a, a brick, or there was a brick factory there called the Nori Brickwork. Nori, N-O-R-I, is actually iron backwards. Oh and that's, that's where they got the name from. And the um, uh, Eiffel Tower is built. The, the base is built from Nori bricks um, and, and various other uh, well-known buildings all over the world. So anyway, we digress, and I do this a lot, so I do apologise. Um, no, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm a world-class digressor too, so as long as we find <laughs> our way back, that's the main thing, I think. <laughs> so, um, so, yes, so uh, the Accrington Conservative Club, as I say, was, it, was, um, it was a magnificent building. It was built in the, in the late um, 1890s. Um, 
it was built over three floors and had a huge cellar underneath. Uh, and for many, many years, it was um, it was basically uh, uh, the headquarters for the local Conservative Party. Now, not wanting to get into politics, but that's not the way that I lean. The yeah. reason why I was working there was because my dad was a member, um, much to my disgust. Um, oh, sounds like um, my family. <laughs> <laughs> he was he, he was actually the secretary there. So whilst I was going through college, um, I needed a part-time job and he got me a job working behind the bar. So going back to this particular night, it was um, it was actually a midweek and I was working on the ground floor bar um, and there were there were three floors. So there were bars on each floor and on the top floor was um, a ballroom and it, it was a huge it was called the Majestic Ballroom. And they used to have, you know, the old time um, big bands used to used to play there on a Friday and a Saturday night. People used yeah. to come from miles and miles around to, you know dance and um, and what have you um it was it was it was an elderly clientele shall we say um so you know we used to draw lots and hopefully we didn't get a lot of which meant we had to go and work upstairs all night on the top floor because it was <laughs> it was quite grim um but it was interestingly it had a sprung floor uh, dance floor and there was only one other sprung floor dance floor which was the same as that in the whole country this is this is the, the big loss that the place burnt down um and the other one is the tower ballroom at blackpool so oh yes i've been there yeah yeah so uh yeah it, it's it's a shame really that the building's now gone um so anyway going back to this particular night it was it was um a midweek and it was very very quiet the only the only used to open the uh the ground floor by during the week for um for the sort of local um uh members of, of the club uh, so you used to get very few people coming in and just just through on on the other side of of the building so there was like um there were like sort of two uh, uh two big rooms downstairs one was the bar area and then on on the other side there was um a big room where there was there were three full-size uh snooker tables so i can oh, imagine yeah. three big 12 by six foot snooker tables so you can imagine it was a big it was a big room and there yeah. was sort of like um, a serving hatch really from the bar into the snooker room so you know people could come up to the bar and and from the snooker room without having to go all the way around and you know they could just go up to the serving hatch get the drinks and carry on playing snooker so this serving hatch if you if you sort of imagine standing with your back to the bar it was on the left-hand side, it was on on your left, um, and it was um, an opening of probably about I would say probably about four foot by four foot um, waist height uh, upwards. So it wasn't a wasn't a big opening, but you know it was big enough to to be able to serve drinks and and what have you. Um, and it was it was really as I said, it was really quiet this night, this particular night. It was um, we were getting pretty close to to closing time, and. There was um, a guy called Bernard who was the steward of the club, so he used to look after the day-to-day -day running of, of the club and everything. And he was the only, he was the only other person in the building, and he was up. I, I knew that he was up on the third floor, um, restocking the bar up in the ballroom. So now, bearing in mind, I'm about 19 years of age uh, at this point, so you know, nothing phases me. I know it all. You know, typical um typical you know teenage late late teenage lad um and i remember standing there and 
what you know when you see something moving out of the corner of your eye yeah, i could see yeah. i could see something moving to my left through this um serving hatch and I, I looked i turned my head to have a look and i saw this very tall thin dark figure um stood i could only see it from the waist up because of obviously the, the you know the serving hatch was only open from the waist up um but it, it was almost I mean, it was it was obviously taller than I was, and I'm six foot two. And as I was looking down the bar, I was only about maybe ten feet away from the serving hatch, but I was I was looking up at it, so that's how tall it was. Um, and I remember it, it looked like it had a hat on, and it was like a fedora type hat. Mm. And it leaned forward, and I could see it put its hands on either side of the bar. It, you know, it had really long arms, really long, thin body, no facial features. It was just like a black outline, really. And it leaned forward and it almost seemed to lean forward through the serving hatch, looking for something on the other side of the bar. And then it disappeared. Now, this lasted for about maybe three or four seconds, which is actually quite a long time when you're looking at something that you don't expect to be there and you can't work out what it is. It is, yeah. And I was sort of frozen to the spot, really, for, for a good sort of 10 seconds after it had disappeared. And then I suddenly thought to myself, oh, well, you can imagine what I thought. Um, oh, heck, I've just seen a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> or something along those lines. And we had um, an internal phone system in the club. So I grabbed the telephone and bearing in mind, you know, this day this, these were in the days way before we had mobile phones or anything like that. Um, and, you know, sort of had to, it was like the old dial phones. You had to dial one for, you know, the ballroom and two for the middle floor bars. Yeah. I dialed one and it rang and the steward, Bernard, picked the phone up and I said, you need to come down now. And he, and he said sort of, you know, so the, the, the conversation went sort of like, you know, well, why, what's wrong? I said, no, you need to come down now. I've just seen something really weird. So he said, right, I'll be down in a minute. So anyway, he, you know, Julie came down came down three flights of stairs, walked into the bar. And um, he said, you look like you've seen a ghost. <laughs> I said, yeah, surprisingly enough, I have. And he said, what? And he looked at me and he said, well, what have you seen? And I said, well, there was this figure in the in shape in the um, snooker room. And he said, oh, you've seen it as well, have you? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, oh, I said, I've, I've seen it a couple of times. He said, there's been... Um, a few people who've worked behind the bar over the years down here that's that's seen it, uh, put the coat on, left, and never come back. Oh no! But uh, he said, "I've I've seen it a couple of times." And and he said, "Was it tall, thin, dark shape? Looked like it had a hat on." I said, "Yeah, that's the one." So it had been seen before, quite you know, on on quite a few times, and it was only. Um, later as i say when i started um discovering sort of paranormal radio paranormal podcasts um that i put two and two together and realized that this was probably what people refer to as um a shadow man um, yeah. or a shadow figure because it has that um that you know that shape and 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 that you know, just the just the way that it looked is is sort of classic shadow man. Yeah, and was it absolutely pitch black? I know that people say that it's almost like um, a, a colour that's blacker than black. Is that what it was to you? 
Um, Burning Man, it's a long time ago. No, it, it, it didn't. From what I can recall, it, it was it was very dark, but I could still see through it, but only just. So it wasn't it wasn't like a sort of solid black mass. It was almost like a really um, thick uh, fog, black yeah. smoke, almost soot, soot, sooty black smoke. You know the the stuff that comes out of a chimney when you when you're burning coal. You know that yeah. that sort of um, con- that 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 sort of consistency almost. If you know what I mean. Yeah, and did you get the feeling that it had seen you, that it was sort of intelligent, or do you think it was just something that was playing out? No, that's something that a lot of people have asked me, actually, and, and interestingly, at the time, I didn't feel like it, it had any... Um, uh, it, it knew I was there. It, 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 it was almost like a replay, I think, right. um, rather than something intelligent, which, which again, is... That's not normally how these shadow man or shadow people uh, behave. They do tend to have some sort of intelligence behind them. But this one at the time didn't seem to me to have that that level of intelligence. It may well have done. Um, it happened so fast um, and it happened obviously a long time ago that I don't really recall how I felt at the time other than I was quite shaken up by it. Um, but I, I, I don't remember sort of feeling like it knew I was there, uh, yeah. any, any perception that I was there. Uh, but that doesn't mean to say that that it didn't. Yeah. But it, it, I, was def- it was definitely, it looked like, it seemed like it was looking for something, which is the, the odd thing about it. The way that it sort of put its arms, put its hands on either side of the bar. I could, I, I could see them on the top of the bar. Um, and sort of like you know leaning forward and almost looking over from the you know the the, the snooker room through the um, serving hatch and over the bar on on the side that I was stood. Yeah, maybe I was expecting his pint and wondering why it wasn't there. <laughs> Very possible. <laughs> Very possible. But obviously, this had a really big effect on you because the book that you went on to write. Um, you use that experience as the title, which is the Shadow Man of Accrington. I did. So, w- was it that experience that um, inspired you to write the book, or did that all come later? Uh, no, that that all came later. Um, I mean, it was something that um, that happened, and I, I always remember. I, I remembered it for thirty years. You know, it's sort of thirty years later that I've decided to write the book. Um, yeah. The reason why I decided to write the book was because when I started listening to paranormal radio stations and uh, I started discovering podcasts, um, and I realised what this um, this particular um, phenomena that I'd seen was, or probably was, um, I then started to remember all the other uh, paranormal stories that I'd heard from um, friends and family. So, for instance, um, my wife's family used to live in a um, a 16th, sorry, 15th century farmhouse, which was um, converted into a cattery and a dog kennels, but they had a resident poltergeist. Um, mm-hmm. I um, was told about 
uh, a school which was which had some absolutely amazing uh, paranormal activity in it, um, and that's and that's in, and that that's in the book. Um, and that's quite a new school as well, isn't it? It is. It's it's yeah. only been, well built probably about I don't know 14, 15 years ago now. But the interesting thing with that is that it's not it's not the building itself; it's what it's built on, um, which is which is is you know has has got the uh, residual energy of what is obviously you know quite a number of um, different entities, um, and um, you know I can I can talk about that in in more depth later if you like because it is. It's a really interesting um, place, and, and there's, there's some quite quite amazing paranormal activity been going on there. Um, but the reason why I decided to write the book really was because I was collecting all these stories, and the more people that I spoke to, because I had this idea, I had this this genesis of an idea to write the book anyway yeah. uh, for, for quite a few years, but I never got round to it because life gets in the way you know i'm with you there i'm with you there (laughs) you have a job you have children um you know you don't find the time to do it um but i i always think that everybody's got one book in them um and you know if if this is my book then this is my book although i am i am beginning to write a second one because i've got so much more uh, material that i think people would would be interested in reading but going back to the first book i got so many stories together and then i remembered you know all these um sort of um uh you know local legends and folklore and the pendle witches for instance which in itself you know the pendle witch story is often um sort of twisted and manipulated into something which is is not is not the, the true story it's sensationalized yeah. way beyond. I mean, it was sensational enough as it was, um, but it's often sensationalized way beyond what it actually was. Um, yeah. and, and, and there's a lot of urban myths that, that people throw into the story. And sometimes it actually really irks me because, you know, the story itself is, is a fascinating story as it is. You don't need to sex it up to make yeah. it more fascinating because the actual story itself is is a story which is worth telling. So I got I had all these these different stories part of I mean I was you know for really strange um sort of coincidences in meeting people that 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 had a story to tell me that ended up in the book because it was so um so amazing. Um we were at a friend's house um couple it was it wasn't last easter because obviously the covid um it was the easter before uh and we'd just been invited around for a bit of a get together with family and friends you know the good old days when you could mix um and uh the the girl's house that we were at is a friend of of sarah and my wife's and they're both teachers and there was there was another teacher there called helen who um was a an ex-colleague of um, my wife's friend. And she, she, she said to me, she came up to me, we never, never met before. And she said, um, I, I believe you're writing a book on ghosts. 
And I thought, oh, here we go. She's going to take the mickey. Because, you know, sometimes you're a bit sort of yeah. guided about, you know, because people either believe or, or they don't. Um, and I said, well, yeah, I am. And she said, well, I've got a story to tell. And then she told me about her house with this little boy that they see in the house who doesn't have any legs and plays oh, with Oh, yes. Yeah, I read about that today. Yeah, so that's how that one came about. So um, uh, just putting feelers out on on social media, for instance, um, I had an email from um, a lady who lived in a, uh, a terrace house in a place called uh, Clayton Lemoers, which is... Oh, yes, I was going to ask you about that story, actually. Yeah, so, yeah, the... Um, the uh, coal mine disaster one. So yeah. she told me all about that. So, so that went in the book. So a lot of these stories, are, are, you know, the stories that are very personal to these people who have told me their stories, um, they're not stories that, that are out there that, that are, you know, have been published dozens of times in different books. You know, they're not, they're not your sort of, uh, White Lady of Salmsbury Hall or, you know, yeah. um, The Ghosts of the Tower of London, that, you know, you, you could pick up a dozen books all on the same subject. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these, a lot of the stories that, that are in the book are, are really um, personal to to either myself, to, me, to my family, uh, to people that I've met, to friends. Um, and that's why I decided to write the book, because, you know, these stories um one have been heard before yeah no i think that's a fabulous way to do it um and they're also interesting as well i wondered if you'd mind quickly telling us a little bit about the clayton limo's pit disaster story because that was absolutely fascinating yeah i was contacted by um uh by a lady called susan and um she wanted to tell me about a house that that they had lived in she wasn't she wasn't living in in the house at the time when she when she uh, when she emailed me, um, and it was actually in response to um, a post that I just put on a local paranormal uh, Facebook page, I'm just saying you know if you've got any stories that you'd like to share with me, I'm writing a book. Um, and actually, I think she was the only one that replied. But it was such a great story that um, it was one of these where I was reading the email and my jaw was dropping more and more and more as I was reading it. Yeah. Um, so I rang her, spoke to her over the phone, and you know she seemed nothing but genuine, which um, which is why I wanted to put the story in uh, in the book. Um, she'd um, about ten years earlier, she uh, her and her husband had, had bought um, a house, and I actually went went for a drive and found found the house. Um, it's it's just a, a typical um, northern terraced house you know sort of smallish uh two up two down in a in a row of other terrace houses on a on a normal sort of you know lancashire street basically um but she said that that when they bought the house it needed quite a bit of uh renovation to it so they used to go in and renovate it um do it up whilst they were living at the at the previous house and she said that um as soon as, as they bought it and went in and started doing work on it, she knew that there was something um, not quite right about the house. And she said, basically, they had 10 years. Well, she lived there 10 years before she sold it. Uh, she had 10 years of, of all sorts of different paranormal activity. 
Um, and some of the examples she gave me were um, they used to hear uh, heavy footsteps on the uh, landing upstairs um, and in the uh, what she referred to as the back back bedroom, which was um, over the kitchen at the back of the house. So they'd be in the kitchen and they'd hear all this these footsteps um, uh, stomping, you know, um, like somebody walking around uh, in the bedroom above. Yeah. But, they, but they knew they knew there was nobody in there. Um, and these sort of nocturnal footsteps got so bad that um, her husband used to get up out of bed and go out onto the, the landing to see if there was anybody there and go downstairs and check the doors. Um, there was one occasion where he was trying to open a door into this second bedroom, and although there was no lock on the door, he couldn't open, he couldn't open the door. There was something physically pulling at it from the other side. Um, and he said it pulled so hard, slammed the door so hard that it actually broke the the door casing. Um, wow! Gosh. You know, so, so that's that's you know there's a fair old force to do that. Um, there was another occasion where she was in, and actually this this was one where she said um, this was the last straw. They were stood in the kitchen, herself, her husband, and her eldest son, and she said a knife literally levitated up off the kitchen table and was hurled towards the sun and he, he managed to just dodge it and it, it you know just literally flew past his head um bounced off the wall on the opposite side of the kitchen and she said at that point they decided that they were going to move out because as she put it you know the footsteps at night they could put up with um and, and perhaps the doors slamming they could put up with uh, but when they started having, you know, sharp knives thrown at them for, for no apparent reason, then um, she said that was, you know... That's enough. That's enough. But she did some some research um, and she discovered that um, there was a nearby pit called, um, I think, I think if, I, if I remember rightly, was it the Woodhead Pit, which was um, yeah. a, coal, a coal mine. There was quite a few coal mines in the area because the whole area was sat on um, a coal seam and there was actually two coal seams um, and these, they, they were called uh, Upper Mountain and Lower Mountain. And um, they had to, because they, they, you know, they used to start off by digging all the, the coal out, which was easiest to get at, they used to have to go deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and where she lived, there was actually mine shafts running underneath the, um, the 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 mine was about it's probably about I would say about half a mile away from. Uh, well, the mine isn't there anymore. There's actually um, a memorial to um, to the the men and and boys who lost their lives uh, because there was a yeah. a, a disaster. Was that the uh, Moorfield Colliery? That's the one. Moorfield, yeah. that was it. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Moorfield, not Woodhead. Woodhead was the next one. Moorfield, that was it, yeah. Yeah, it was Moorfield. Sorry, I apologise. Because uh, there was quite a few collieries very close to each other and, and um, Woodhead was was the next one along. Yeah, um, yeah so um, there were there were a number of mine shafts that, that ran under the area and um, there was a mine shaft which ran directly underneath the road that she was living on and, and ran directly underneath the houses. Um and uh, there was, uh, unfortunately, there was a disaster. There was an explosion, buildup of, um, of gas. 
and there was an explosion. And what had happened was the supervisor that was in charge of the pit head on the morning of the explosion, uh, for some reason, refused to send um, the lifts down to uh, get get some of the men out. And unfortunately, at that time, there were quite a lot of um, boys who they used to send down the mines as well. Some of them were sort of as young as, as 11 or 12, you know, um, yeah. which was, you know, quite sad. And, and on this particular occasion, there was a number of them that um, unfortunately they, they died. Um, they didn't recover the bodies. Now, for some reason, the, as I say, the pit head supervisor, um, didn't want to send one of the cages down to to bring uh, the miners up. Um, there was an inquest held actually, and I think he, I think he, his feeling was that it would endanger. Uh, there was there was a the danger of, of an explosion at the um, pit head, which yeah. which would have caused you know more damage. There had already been an explosion underground. Um, and they knew that it had killed quite a few, uh, a few people. Um, but unfortunately, his uh, decision not to send the cages down to bring them up um, from the bottom of the shaft meant that there were there were more casualties. Um, there was actually an explosion shortly afterwards at the pit head, anyway, and he was injured um, along with uh, a few other uh, men who were there. Um, but he was so badly injured that he was um, he was taken back to his house, which was which was you know fairly close by, um, well about half a mile away actually, um, and he uh, lived for, for about another three days and then died. Um, and it turned out that the house that he lived in and consequently died in was Susan's house. Wow. Um, now she um, employed a medium to uh, come into the house and try and find out what this paranormal activity was. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the medium that came in, the lady, immediately said that there were a number of spirits in the house, and they were all connected with. Um, the deaths of of these um, miners, the men and, and boys um, who died in this um, this disaster, and quite a number of them have been trapped in the shafts underneath where she lived. Um, and she said that um, these spirits couldn't move on because they were angry that the um supervisor the pit head supervisor hadn't sent the cages down to to get them out and so they blamed him obviously for the deaths and that's why mm. they were hanging around this house uh because they knew that that he had you know he'd lived there um and and they and, and they couldn't move on there were there were other spirits as well she mentioned one of a priest as well um, which was connected with nearby Duncan Alsh Hall, which is a big um, stately home um, near Accrington. And it owns um, a lot of land. Oh, it, it used to own um, a lot of land in the area. There were a, a, you know, a very rich landowning family. Um, and it was one of the um, uh, 
priests who um, was connected with Duncan Alsh Hall had somehow also got himself attached, according to the medium, um, to this house. Although, you know, he was from a, a time many hundreds of years um, before the pit disaster. And um, she could never sort of get to the bottom of why he would be attached in, in, in some form to, uh, to the house. So, um, yeah, there was, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of paranormal activity. She, um, she moved out and the house was, um, was sold and, and subsequently rented. Uh, but she said that she always kept an eye on who was living there. And she noticed that over the space of the next couple of years, there was at least half a dozen families had moved in and then subsequently moved out again. So there was obviously, yeah. you know, the Something. paranormal activity was still was still going on. Um, there was other things as well. I mean, she said that they used to get a smell of um, a smell of burning um, in one particular corner of of the uh, the living room, the front room, and yeah. um, it was where the TV was, the television um, uh, used to stand. And when it first started, uh, they thought it was the TV, you know, that, that was, yeah. you know, electrical fault. Um, but it turned out that there would actually been um, a house fire and um, there'd been uh, two girls, two little girls that died in this house fire. Um, and her youngest, I think it was her youngest son, said that he used to play with two little girls that only he could see um, in the house. Um, One was called Christy, and, you know, I honestly can't remember the name of the other one. Um, Helena? Helena, that's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Helena and Christy. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, her her son used to play with these two little girls, and um, he sort of described what they were wearing as... as, um, you know, it's like Victorian dresses. And when when Susan did a bit of research and, and, you know, looked up some of the records and that, she found that it was actually during the sort of mid-Victorian era because the houses were about 200 years old. So, they, you know, they were quite, they were quite old even yeah. for um, even for that type of terrace house in, in, in the area. Um, there had been a house fire and, and there had been, there had been some casualties. So, um, oh, that's incredible. yeah, yeah. And it, it's incredible that that house, there must've been something special about that house that attracted spirits there. Um, did, did she ever say whether other people on the street had any ghostly experiences in the, in the rest of the terraced houses? Yeah, apparently there was, um, there was other, other houses along the row that used to have, some you know some of them used to have um, activity. Uh, she she actually said, I, "I suspect that they all do, and just some people are either not attuned to it, or they just don't want to believe it, or they just don't want to admit, you know, that they think they've got a ghost in case people think they're a bit bonkers, yeah, uh, a bit crackers, you know." But I think, um, I think that's quite common actually. Um, that's yeah. kind of brings me on quite well to. Um, in your book, you sort of go into a bit of detail about what you think different types of ghosts are, and that you think there are several um, types of spirits and ghosts. 
could you just tell us um, a bit about what you think the different types are? Yeah, well, the, the ones that, that I've researched or the ones that I've been told about, I think, fall into one of, of, of a few categories. Um, you've got your classic sort of poltergeist um, type haunting or ghost, which is obviously an intelligent, um, malevolent, usually, spirit. So something that, that can physically move objects, um, tends to throw things around, for instance, um, yeah. uh, glasses, um cutlery in, in in that particular case um you've then got um what i believe some people call the stone tape theory yeah um, i tend to re, re, sort of refer to them more as a as a recording so it's almost like um a snapshot of time that is replaying itself um over and over again and that tends to be attached to a particular place um, and it also seems to be um, uh, where there's been some sort of um, very highly charged emotional uh, experience or, or event. Um, and it's almost like it's sort of stamping itself um, on that, that particular place. It's like the energy is replaying itself over and over again. And like I say, some people call it stone tape theory. So they believe that this energy is in the fabric of, of the building. Um, yeah. The ones that I've come across, some of them, some of them are in the fabric of the building, uh, but some of them like the school are more in the fabric of the, of where the building is. So it's almost like um, uh, a space in time, if you like, which is yeah. re, you know replaying itself um it's attached to to the place and not not the building um so they're the sort of two main um types of of phenomena shall we call them um yeah there's also time slips as well which i think is is an interesting um an interesting thing and i've i've been told um of a, of a it's probably it, it sounds very much like a time slip um actually in the village where i live um uh literally just around the corner from where i live on the site of um what used to be a cotton mill yeah um, called victoria mill and a local lady had a, an experience which sounds very much like a um a time slip so you know this is this is where you you, you see a scene or or you see people um from another time and whether it's you intruding on on their time or their time intruding on our time now um is open to debate but it's almost like you know looking through a window in time um and the famous one of those was um or is a place called bold street in liverpool which i'm not really an expert on i've just heard it in in passing but there is stuff on, on the internet um, that you can you can find and read about. And there's been several um, eyewitness um, statements of people that have, have been to Bald Street and have almost travelled back in time to, a, to an earlier period and have, have found themselves surrounded by, you know, a completely different place, um, uh, you know, sort of 
going back into uh, the 1930s, you know, with the old 1930s cars driving past. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the shop fronts all being different and you're actually physically in this space and you can see all this and it's all around you. Um, so that's that's an interesting um, uh, phenomenon, premise. It uh, is, really. I mean, I heard of one as well. I can't remember where I read about it now, but it was this man, and I think it was one of the older areas of London, maybe Blackfriars or something. There was a cobbled street and... He and this other lady went into this, what they thought was quite a trendy um, clothes shop. And when they got in there, it suddenly changed to a different shop. And they both sort of looked at each other and pretended to look around and were very confused. And then they both went outside and it changed back to present day again. And they sort of looked at each other and went, did you see that? And... The other woman said, yes, I don't know what was going on there. And then they sort of separated. And But they said when they were in the shop, it felt like they were actually in this shop from the past. Yeah. It's incredible, really. Yeah, and I often wonder whether time slips are responsible for, for when people see ghosts, whether you're actually seeing something um, back in time that's not a replay you're actually seeing back to the time when that person was was in in their time so you're not seeing somebody who's dead yeah you see that person in their time as they are experiencing it themselves you're seeing them um now that's whether really they, mind-boggling uh, actually isn't it to think yeah. about whether they can see you and they think you're a ghost as well now that's a whole different discussion <laughs> is, yeah because funnily enough there's um i don't know if you've seen it there's a new program um just started with nick groff uh, called death walkers i think it is and right. he is trying to um look into this time slip theory among other things um yeah. and it, it's funny that you know these sort of coincidences happen because i only heard about this in the last few days and yet here we are talking about the same thing and I've never really talked about it before no it's it's um it's an interesting theory uh, I mean for it I'll, I'll, I'll quickly because it's a very quick story I'll, I'll tell you the story that I was told yeah. um I live in a small village as I say uh, near the town of um Clitheroe and um there was a a cotton mill in the village um up until, well, it, it was demolished in about the 1970s, I think, to make way for, for housing. There's there's modern housing on the area now. Um, but you can see where the the mill was. Um, you can see the uh, the old mill pond that, that, that they built, sort of like a big lodge area, really, where they used to hold the water. There's a, a natural water source which runs down from Pendle Hill because, you know, I'm that close to it. Um, and it, it, go, it goes through the village and then um, empties into the uh, River Ribble at the bottom of, of the valley. Yeah. Uh, so they built a, a, a cotton mill and they used to use this water to power, initially to power the cotton mill. Um, and then, of course, they went on to, to, to coal power, steam power. Uh, but they obviously still needed the water for the state, you know, to, to produce steam and everything else. Um, but this cotton mill was still working right up until um well up until the 1970s and 
the lady who was telling me the story said that she 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 came home one night. She lives um, in one of the houses that has, has now been built on on the site of the demolished mill, and she'd been out to see a friend. Drove back. It was early in the morning. She said it was about about, about half past one in the morning. Um, she parked her car up outside a house and she got out of the car. And as she was looking down the road, she said she saw a group of people stood in the middle of the road. And she, the first thing she thought was, what, what's going on? It's looked at her watch. It's half one in the morning. What, what's going on? And she said, as she looked closer, they were, they were only about maybe 25, 30 yards away from where she was stood. And she said, as she sort of looked at them closer, she, she realised that they were wearing um, old clothes, as she put it. And she said it reminded her of the clothes that her parents used to, used to wear in the 1950s when they worked at the cotton mill. Because she she was born and, and raised in, in the village. Her parents worked in the in the cotton mill, lived very close by. And she said she, she suddenly realised that where they were stood was where the entrance used to be to the cotton mill. And she said the more she looked at them, and, and they were in plain view for, she said, maybe a minute or so, maybe even longer than that. She said the more she looked at them, she more she, the more that she realised that they were waiting to go into the cotton mill. They were waiting for it to open, waiting for the, for the shift to start. She said it was that scene that just reminded her of when she was a little girl and, you know, her parents used to be stood there waiting to go in and, and you know, she'd say bye to them and go off to school, at the local school. Um, and she said this scene was, was as, as clear as, well, as clear as day can be at half past one in the morning. Yeah. Um, but it then just just went and and she said she couldn't she couldn't fathom what she'd seen she couldn't work out what she'd seen and i said to her i said well have you heard of time slips and i mean you know she's she's a lady who's who's you know getting on in years um yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't suffer fools you know she's very very plain talking um seen it all done it all um you know um lady and and you know i said to her have you heard of time slips have you heard of this phenomenon because because you know i said to her do you believe in ghosts and she said well yeah i do um and i said well have you heard of time slips and and when i when i told her what what a time slip could be um she said it made sense yeah. of, of you know what what she'd seen um but she was ab absolutely adamant you know that she'd um she'd seen what she'd seen and i have i have absolutely no reason to disbelieve her um and the, the, you know there's there's other other stories that i've heard about the same sites the same area um one of my neighbors uh last summer we were just um chatting away doing you know when we could um mixing gardens yeah. um we were just having a beer one night and um i was talking to uh one of my neighbors and we were actually discussing this Subject, you know, we're talking about ghosts and, and what have you. And his neighbour popped his head over the wall and said, "Well, when I when I were a young lad, he said we used to go playing up where, where the mill used to be. He said up near Mill Pond. He said, and we'd see we'd see a ghost. We'd see a ghost of a of a of a of a fella used used to used to come running through the trees towards us. 
and he said it used to scare the you know what's out of us you know so just just you know just random uh stories that that people tell you are quite it makes them more believable because you know why would somebody make up something like that on the spot yeah this is what fascinates me um the more you talk to people and i always make a point of asking everybody i mean um, my teaching assistant at school i asked her and she came up with these two amazing stories the amount of stories that people have is quite incredible really yeah um and you know uh i mentioned at, at the beginning that um my in-laws used to have a uh, a farm, Catery and a, a dog kennels at a place called Rising Bridge, which is um, sort of on the north side of Manchester. It's at the top of the um, the M66 motorway, but it's really high up on the moors. It's, you know, the whole area is really sort of windswept and um, often gets cut off during the winter when it snows. It's, it's really, yeah. really, really elevated. And this farmhouse um, was actually built in uh the late 1590s and it was one of the oldest remaining standing buildings um in lancashire and um it had a it had a poltergeist and they, they used to hear uh heavy footsteps at night on um what sounded like um hobnail boots as as Sarah described it's so sort of like really heavy boots with with almost metal studs you could hear that that metal sound and it was metal on stone and they could hear it um both downstairs and upstairs on the on the first floor landing but the first floor landing had um floorboards wooden floorboards and but they could hear these these footsteps going up and down and in fact whatever it was well, they called. They, they said it was a he uh, because of how heavy the footsteps were. It used to stop yeah. outside Sarah's sister's bedroom door and bang on the door, and her sister used to shout obscenities to it, as you know, <laughs> "Go away!" sort of thing, you know, um, in in not in not so many words. And and it did. It used it used to stop. Um, <laughs> but, but the interesting thing was that they were doing some renovations and and they they pulled all the floorboards up. Um, on the on the first floor on the landing and underneath were the original stone lintels so whatever it we know whoever this person was was obviously walking on the stone lintels that that used to be there now another interesting one um this was a story that sarah's uh granddad used used to tell me and he, he he told me this on more than one occasion he's unfortunately passed away passed away a few years ago now but um he was staying at the farm sarah's um, mum and stepfather had gone on holiday um they had a little um place in spain that they used to go to and um sarah's granddad sam uh, was staying over and looking after the looking after the farm and the kennels and what have you and um he liked he, he liked to whiskey did did sam and um sarah's stepdad used, used to have quite a, a nice selection of single malt whiskies so he poured himself a glass and and put the glass it was one of the, you know one of the the, the the heavy tumbler type glasses and he put it on the sideboard um and he, he was going off to probably do something you know, i don't know 
light the fire or something like that because they had open fires in there. And he said this glass, he looked and he said this glass levitated, lifted itself up off the sideboard and floated across the room at sort of head height. And he said he watched it and then it just stopped in midair and dropped to the ground. Um, and now luckily there was, there was carpeting on the floor, so it didn't break the glass, but obviously, you know, the whiskey went everywhere. And yeah. he, he said he'd never seen anything like it in his life. Uh, and he said, up until that point, I didn't believe what they were telling me about that that house. He said, because I hadn't, you know, I had not seen or heard anything before, he said. But after that, I, I believed everything they told me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. Wow, that's incredible. And what a shame um, uh, for whichever spirit was... Um trying to get some whiskey it seems like they uh, they missed out <laughs> well yeah and and the you know there's there was other things as well when when they decided that they wanted to sell the business and sell the sell the farm um every time either the estate agent or somebody came around to view it all the electrics would would fuse um and Sarah's stepdad used to have to go down into the cellar and change the um change the fuses in in the it was big old old fuse box one of the old 1930s tight ones you know with the big um, cartridge fuses mm. and he used to he used to have to change these fuses every time because it had it had just it had just blow uh the electrics completely but it was only when either the estate agent came around or somebody came around to view the house if anybody else came around if anybody knocked at the door, you know, they were dropping a dog off or what have you before they went on holiday. No, nothing. As soon as somebody came around to look at the house, all the electrics would fuse. Oh, my goodness. So somebody knew. Yeah. Somebody okay. didn't want them to move. Gosh, that's incredible. So um, I was going to ask you, actually, in uh, more normal times, because you may not have got out over the last year, did you used to go out on investigations at all? Um, Have you ever done anything like that? Yeah, I, I, I did. I, well, I'm not so much of an investigator as more um, I like to collect stories from, from right, people. Yeah. Um, I'm not against uh, doing investigations, but I don't, I don't tend to, um, I don't, I wouldn't go in somewhere with all this electrical equipment and video cameras and, and all, all that sort of stuff. And, that, that's what I was going to ask you, because no. I know there's sort of two camps, the high-tech camp and the low-tech camp. Um, yeah. So I guess you're the low-tech. I'm very low-tech. Um, I don't, I, I, I sometimes get a little bit wound up by what, what I, or what a lot of people refer to as paranormal for profit. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, a lot of the things that you see on, YouTube, a lot of the things you see on on certain TV shows, uh, are, are, are very uh, very dramatic. Um, you know the fact that that these people are going into um, old abandoned hospitals, shall we say, for instance, and they're going in there with a camera, and lo and behold, you know some paranormal activity happens, or they say yeah. paranormal activity happens just at the point where they happen to be there with the camera. I don't. I don't believe that that paranormal activity will happen to order. If it's going to happen, it will happen. Um, and I'm more of a, a, a sort of, I, I tend to get a sense of a place. So I can, I'm not a medium. I, I won't pretend to be a medium. Um, but I do 
feel that some people can attune themselves more to paranormal activity um, or to a feeling of a place rather like, you know, when you tune in an old radio into to a radio station with a dial, you know, the old, the old dial radios where you had to, you know, really just get it spot on to get the, the radio station clearly coming through. I think yeah. a lot of, I think some people have got that ability to be able to just fine tune themselves into whatever energy is in a place. Yeah. In um, your book, you've mentioned that you've picked up on a few different energies, sometimes sadness or negativity. What, what's happened yeah. to you during those experiences? Um, well, going back to, to what we were talking about the school, um, this particular uh, school, I was I was I was told was um, there was a lot of paranormal activity in this this school. It was a it yeah. is it is a secondary school, um, and the building was was only about well when I wrote the book it was about twelve or thirteen years uh, old, um, so it'd probably be about fifteen years old now. Um, but it's what the building is built on rather than the building itself that was um, holding this this paranormal activity, this energy. And I was invited to go on and basically go on a, a guided tour of this school um, by one of the guys that um, he was he worked there as a maintenance man in effect. But they also used to have 24-hour security um, because the school's in quite a, a rough area of yeah. uh, Darwin in, in Lancashire. Um, and he, he told me a number of stories about, you know, the different types of, um, of ghosts and, and activity that, that was going on there. But when he took me, and, and in fact, he it was both myself and Sarah that, that went around the school. Um, I certainly picked up on certain areas where I felt that there was something unpleasant um, within certain parts of the school. So, for instance, um, one of the ghosts is um, a little boy that um, they see, they actually, they actually see him, he tends to to be seen on the on the third floor of the school uh, where the music room is and he likes to play the drums <laughs> so they will for instance you know they'll, they'll the, the school will be closed at night there'll be um this this guy that that was taking me around and told me all about this guy called Stuart, uh, and he said that you know there'd be him and uh, somebody else who, who would spend the night in the school to make sure that you know there was no break-ins or if the alarms went off or, or you know there's somebody on site to to basically you know be security guards at the school and um he said they would they would hear in the middle of the night when they were up in the um the staff room just having a cup of coffee or whatever and you know chatting away he said they would hear the drums somebody playing the drums and they'd They'd go up to the um, to the music room, and you know the the drumsticks that that they had previously picked up off the floor and, and laid flat on the snare drum will be back on the floor again. Mm. Um, and he said they, they they would see this little boy running up and down the corridor. They'd been seen by numerous teachers, um, numerous um, pupils, even 
over the years. Um, and they, they, they nicknamed him Casper, you know, Casper the Friendly Ghost. Yeah. Um, but he was described as being a little boy, uh, probably about eight or nine years of age, uh, looked like he was wearing Victorian-ish, Edwardian-type maybe clothes. Um, and the, 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 he said that um, there, there was uh, a boys and girls toilet on that floor. And he said there was one occasion where there was um, two of the year 11 girls were in the toilet taking a selfie and when they looked back at the picture stood in, it stood in between them um was a little boy oh my goodness dressed in old clothes and, and wearing a, a flat cap as they put it Gosh, so i'd love to see that picture well i asked him if he could get hold of the picture and he said it was actually um one of the um uh, staff members had asked for a copy of it from from the the pupils they this, this was a few years ago, so they've they've left and and gone off now. But uh, but unfortunately, this um, this teacher had um, had subsequently left, so oh. um, he didn't know where she'd where she'd gone to. But no, I I, I would have loved to see that photograph as well. Um, but there, there were certain areas of the school, and and this is getting back to uh, what the school was built on, as opposed to the actual fabric of the building itself. Yeah. Um, I had a look at some uh, maps going back to um, the early 1900s and there was um, there was a church. Now, I did some research into um, what happened when, when they built the school and it, it was in the local newspapers. There was a bit of a, um, you know, quite a lot of um, uh, hoo-ha about this this school being built because they actually knocked this, the, the church down that was on the site. And they exhumed quite a lot of the bodies that were in the graveyard and reburied them in a different graveyard in, in, in the town. Yeah. But I don't know whether you're aware of that, but certainly in the Victorian time, Victorian era, um, often families couldn't afford to pay for headstones. So consequently, a lot of the older graveyards have got a lot of unmarked graves. Yeah, I think they used to call them pauper's graves, didn't they? Yeah, they did, yeah. So although they exhumed um, quite a large number of, of bodies, coffins, um, they only did the ones that they, you know that were marked with headstones. So there was, there was probably still quite a lot that, that hadn't been marked, and so therefore they hadn't been moved. So... Um, they, they obviously uh, demolished the church, cleared the graveyard, uh, built the school on the site, and in fact, overlaying the old maps against the new maps, um, where the church was and where the graveyard associated with the church was is now part of the car park of the school. And there was a road called Red Earth Road, which um, went from the church up out into the town and there were houses all, all the way along um, and this particular road looks like from the maps that it actually intersects where the um, the canteen area of the school is and it's interesting because when we went when we, we went through into the canteen the canteen is, is a big sort of open it's like a big glass atrium you know very very modern sort of type building yeah and when we went into the the canteen uh Stuart didn't, didn't tell me anything before we went in there and i felt that there was something 
I actually said said to Sarah, I said, I don't like it. There's something, something doesn't feel right here. And we went into the kitchen. He took us into the kitchen. Um, and I, it felt like I was stood. I started rocking from side to side. And it felt like I was stood on a boat that was rocking from side to side. And I felt physically sick. And I've never felt anything like that before. You know, it's not, I won't pretend that it happens all the time, you know, when I'm feeling ghosts and all that sort of thing. It's never happened to me before. Um, and I felt really uncomfortable. And it was only after I said to him, I don't like it. There's something, there's something here. There's something doesn't feel right. And he told me that um, on dozens and dozens and dozens of occasions over the years, people had seen um, the ghost of a woman going through the canteen, heading from one side of the building down where this road obviously used to be, down towards where the, where the demolished church stood and the graveyard. And he said they used to call her the Wailing Woman because they'd see her dressed and she was dressed in black and she had a cowl up like a hood and she would be crying and screaming and they could see her wringing her hands in front of her. So she was obviously um, mourning somebody. Yeah. You know, she was either going to a funeral or... She was going to a grave, going to see a grave, and, and she had the, all this emotionally charged energy, you know, all this grief that was coming out that somehow seemed to have, have, you know, implanted itself in that area. But she was seen time and time again. It sounded, from what he told me, he said she always goes the same way. She's always doing the same thing. Um, it sounded very much like it was um, a, a replay, in effect. Um, yeah. A re- something that had happened but where the the kitchen was and, and remember i said i went to the kitchen and i felt dizzy and, and yeah side. he said that one lunchtime and and this is in the middle of the day this is not in the middle of the night this is lunchtime middle of the day school's full of kids school's full of staff one of the kitchen assistants was carrying a tray of food pushed the door open and as she pushed the door open to come out of the kitchen she came i would say face to face but she didn't have a face, but she came straight in front of this woman in black, this wailing woman, and oh, she was gosh. stood in front of her, and she said that, that she couldn't see her face, that, that there was just the hood, this this cowl, you know. Um, he described it. He said it's like, you know, the Scottish Widows advert? Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, the, the, the cowl that she pulls yeah. up, she pulls up that sort of, well, it's like that. And this kitchen assistant threw this tray up in the air, screaming at the top of her voice, and and just said, "Right, so I'm I'm not I'm not working here any uh, again," and and legged it and didn't and and refused to come back and, and work there. Um, and and this was this was, you know, broad daylight. So this this figure has been seen so many times by ex pupils, by staff, current staff, ex members of staff. Um, and in fact, I did actually speak to one of the teachers who worked there. Um, she actually emailed me and um, I, I rang her and um, I asked her about this this ghost, uh, this woman. Yeah. And, and she said, yeah, I've seen her. I've seen her down in the, in the canteen area. This, this, this was after I'd finished writing the book. Um, so, yeah, she was she was well known. Um, 
but you know, like I say, going into going into that area with with no prior knowledge of of what had been you know what's been seen, um, I got this really strange feeling, and and it's the strongest feeling that I've ever had anywhere. Um, it doesn't happen all the time, you know. I don't go into an old building and go, "Oh my God, there's a ghost here." I, yeah. I'm not you know, I'm not a modern day Derek Akora or anything like that. But yeah. every now, every now and then. I will get this feeling that perhaps something isn't isn't quite right, um, and and Sarah occasionally gets it as well. When we were going around the school, we went we, after we'd been in the um, the canteen area. We went down into one of the the blocks where the um, the classrooms were, and we went into one room, and it was a re- it, it, because of of the shape of the building, it was actually on one end, and it was almost like a a triangular room. It was it was a really odd classroom, um, and in the the apex of, of of the room of the triangle, um, there was a lot of boxes piled up, and a big uh, movable whiteboard had been pushed into the corner. Um, and as I got closer, I, I walked over to have a look at this whiteboard. And as I got closer to this this corner, again, I started to feel this really strange sensation of, of rocking from side to side. And I turned around to, to say to Sarah, it's happening again. And she said to me, um, there's a man in this room. And he said, I'm getting the name. And she said, I'm getting the name John. She said, the name's John's just popped into my head. She said, and again, she's she's not, you know, she's she's not in the habit of going around saying, you know, walking into a, a room and saying there's a ghost in here called Peter or whatever. It's the first yeah. time she's ever done this. And but she said to me afterwards, she said, I I was absolutely convinced there was a man in the room who didn't want us in there, and he was called John, and he was saying, I don't want you to be in here. I don't want you to be here. Um. And, and, she, and she walked out of the room. She said, I can't stay in here. And I said to Stuart, what, what's with this room? And he said, oh, he said, none of the teachers like teaching in here. He said, it's, it's, that's why all the boxes have been pushed, because the further you get into that corner, the apex, he said, the worse people feel. And he said, the teacher who's teaching in here at the moment has put piled all those boxes up there and put that whiteboard there to stop people from going into that corner. He said, because that corner is like the centre of where this really bad energy is. Gosh, I wonder if it's something to do with the shape of the room that's almost sort of uh, gathering the energy together. Very possibly, yeah, very possibly. Have you ever tried, actively tried to sort of... um, enhance your psychic abilities or open yourself up or anything or is it just if you feel something you feel something well no because i don't think i am psychic (laughs) (laughs) i don't i don't like i say i don't pretend to to be psychic i just think that um some people are more attuned to to these sort of things than others um and i think i've just got this um you know this disability perhaps to to pick up on things that you know perhaps other people would pick up on you know it might not just be something that, that's unique to me yeah. um, i mean obviously in that particular case you know sarah felt that there was something in the atmosphere that that didn't didn't feel right um but no i mean do, do i believe in mediums i don't know 
um you know do i believe in um you know let's 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 go back to you know i mean the classic one's most haunted isn't it do i believe that these these psychics they have you know they go into an old building and and you know, or there's such and such a body here who's, you know, died in 1512 or what have you, cold, you know, and they come out with a name. Do I believe in that? Most of the time, no, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do think that it's, I do think that a lot of paranormal activity, a lot of uh, unexplained happenings, phenomena are to do with energy. And I think that some people can pick up on energy perhaps a little bit better than others. Yeah. And then um, earlier in the um, interview, you um, sort of skipped over the subject of boggarts, which I find really interesting, which are most famously um, in the Harry Potter films. Um, but we know that J.K. Rowling took a lot of her ideas from real ancient folklore. Um, and I understand that in um, Lancashire, that um, poltergeist type um, spirits are called boggarts. Would you like to tell us a bit about them? Yeah, they, they tend to be um, more uh, associated with um, outside places rather than, than inside places. Although there are stories of, um, you know, from, from, from the, the, the behaviour of these spirits um, that, that they call boggarts, um, they're obviously uh, poltergeists um or or a poltergeist type haunting um but a boggart really was 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 a was a a mischievous spirit um and it actually comes from the word bar ghost or gate ghost um and, and they tended to be associated more with outside places so for instance you know um an old unlit country lane of which you know there were hundreds perhaps thousands of them back in you know back before electricity before um electrical um street lights um so there would be you know like a gate um a gate post where there'd be a resident bogger and you know you wouldn't walk past it um in the dead of night on your own because otherwise it'd jump out and um and attack you you know um so there were there were more sort of like folklore um stories that were sort of attached to um started off being attached to places rather than than buildings as such um yeah. but um you know the word has, has, has sort of become associated with um with poltergeists as well um but it's, it's it's a very it's a very peculiar particular sort of northern word um but it just really means a, a sort of mischievous spirit more than anything yeah and am i right in thinking that people used to take things to appease the boggart um like milk and things um yes they did there was there was one um there was one in burnley um of um, a boggart that used to live under a, um, a bridge and um, in order for it to stop uh, attacking um, people that, that used to that, that walked over the bridge um, the locals agreed to once a year um, on a particular day 
whatever crossed the bridge, the boggart could have yeah. um, for itself, um, providing uh, for the rest of the year it left everybody alone. And so um, what the locals on this particular day every year used, used to send a cockerel across and the boggart would come up from under the bridge and grab the cockerel and then that would appease it for the rest of the year. Um, but the legend is that there was, um, a, a, just just as, as the clock ticked over from midnight onto this particular day where they would give this sacrifice of a cockerel to this boggart, um, a local uh, character who'd had a little bit too much ale to drink uh, mm-hmm. in the local tavern decided he was he didn't believe in the boggart and was going to cross um, this footbridge um, to go on his way home. Um, and, and the story is that he only got, he didn't even get halfway before there was an almighty scream and then a splash of water um, from the stream underneath and he disappeared and, and was never seen again. So... Mm-hmm. So they are sort of, um, you know, very much in, in, in the local sort of folklore um, psyche, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Wow, fantastic. Well, um, as we're coming towards the end of our chat, it wouldn't be complete living where you live without you telling us a little bit about the Pendle witches. Um, now, I understand that you're, you're quite... Um, you feel quite strongly about the fact that a lot of these witches might have been quite badly done to. Would you like to just touch on that for us? Yeah, the the story of the Pendle witches is is um, it's quite a sad story, really. It was um, it was in 1612, and it was at the time when um, there was there was a lot of um, uh, witches in inverted commas being um being found and being tried all over the country and it was it was because um king james the first who was on the throne at the time was um absolutely obsessed with witches and rooting out witchcraft um it was he'd written a book um early in the 1600s called uh, demonology and it was all about witchcraft. And um, he had instructed um, all his local magistrates to uh, root out witches um, and, and to bring them bring them to trial. Um, and one of the one of the magistrates in, in the area of, of Pendle was um, a guy called uh, Roger Noel, and he was uh, very much looking to um, sort of curry favour with um, uh, with James I, as were, you know, most of these um, local lawmen, if you like, local uh, local judges um, and magistrates. And briefly, the story of the Pendle Witches was there were two families in the area. Um, one was... Um, uh, the matriarch of the family was was um, uh, somebody that they used, uh, was called Chattox, and the other one, the other family, the matriarch of, the, of that family was called uh, Demdike, old Demdike as they used to call her. Now these um, these people um, were very very poor. 
uh, they used to beg for for food. Um, and, you know, they 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 basically had a a very very low standard of living, um, as did most people at, at that time in the area, because it was it was a very uh, very rural um, place. You know, it still is to a certain degree, but you know, a lot of people really were sort of living. Um, sort of subsistence lifestyle, you know, by begging and, and so on. And what happened was there was an incident where um, a local traveller, a local merchant, um, came across um, one of these families um, and um, claimed to have been uh, bewitched uh, by one of them, Um one of the uh, one of the family members was called Jeanette Device, and she uh, was begging on um, on on one of the roads, um, the main sort of trading route from Burnley to Halifax, yeah. um, which I believe is where you come from originally. And um, this particular uh, merchant uh, had refused to sell. Uh, genetic device some um some pins and she put a curse on him and um about 10 yards down the road he, he had a heart attack and fell off his horse mm-hmm. now this this was attributed to uh to witchcraft and this is basically how it all started um the families both families uh, were implicated as being witches there were various um, accusations and counter accusations made by each family against the other family. Oh, the, the other family. Um, there'd been um, allegedly some bad blood between the family for between the two families for a number of years, um, and there were some elements of, of witchcraft which were, um, you know, which which were used as accusations. Um, but you have to remember that that these, especially these these matriarchs of these of, of the families were very much like sort of um, wise women or, or looked upon as, as wise women by, um, by the people who, who lived in and around the villages um, yeah. in this area because, you know, there would be the people that they would go to if, um, if they were ill so, you know, if, or if they needed a, um, you know, um, if they had a headache, you know, they go, they, you know, they, they go to these these people, these these wise women, you know, yeah. and they, they make them a portion up from local herbs and roots and all that sort of thing. Um, so, so they were like the sort of community doctors of the day, you know. But there was certainly um, there were elements of of witchcraft that that were banded about. So, you know, things like the um, there were each, each family was accusing the other family of things like murder. Um, of uh, cannibalism, um, of uh, turning milk sour, of killing cattle, um, and and there was there was quite a lot of um, sort of peripheral um, characters that, that were dragged into it as well. And they were interviewed um, by Noel. Uh, he um, basically um the the main witness was um a six-year-old girl who was the daughter of uh Jeanette device yeah. and um she made some quite wild accusations about her mother um she made wild accusations about her grandmother demdike 
Um, Dem Dyke in turn said that she was in league with the devil, um, that the devil used to come to her in the form of a black dog, um, that um, she'd made a pact with the devil. It, you know, it, it, she she basically um, agreed that the devil could could suck blood from her in in return for um, giving Dem Dyke whatever she wanted. So, yeah. you know, revenge on people who had wronged her. Uh, for instance, um, you know, they would suddenly become ill and die. Um, so there are all these sort of accusations and, and things like um, uh, making clay. They, 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 they called them clay pictures. They were, they were, they were, they were basically um, little clay models of people. And what mm. they would do is they'd stick pins in them or they would, you know, break the arm off and crumble the arm into the fire and the person who it was supposed to represent would become ill through through that action, through that action of witchcraft. Um, and so there are all these accusations that, that were flying about. And they were all marched up to Lancaster, which is um, about 70 miles away. They were all marched up there um, and they were put on trial at um, Lancaster Castle, and they were all found guilty of witchcraft, um, and they were all hanged. And um, the reason why I get a little bit uh, upset about the whole Pendle witch story is that there tends to be a lot of, um, you know, elements added to the story that that are just simply not true so although there were um accusations of witchcraft and and to a certain degree you know these people believed that what they were saying were true you know they genuinely believed that that they were in league with the devil they genuinely believed that you know the devil was helping them um get revenge on people that they wanted and so on you've got to remember that all of the all the the all of, of of the information we have on on the trial and what was said at the trial and the accusations and the evidence and everything else um, all comes from just one source, and that source was um, uh, a clerk to the court um, who was called Potts, and he basically wrote wrote the transcripts of of what happened in the court. So there's only his. Um, point of uh, view interpretation yeah his, yeah his interpretation of what happened so basically he could have written anything anyway so if they wanted to make the case stronger against these individuals by saying that they were witches you know the um, the accusation of, of let's say for instance you know uh, causing somebody uh, causing a cow to die or turning milk sour or whatever your classic sort of you know witch activity in effect um he could have just put put that in the transcript just to, like I said at the beginning of, of, of the interview, just to sex things up a little bit. So mm. there seem to be a lot of parallels with that and what happened with Salem in America, I think. The um, a lot of things were probably um, put in and a lot of things were left out, and you're probably not left with the truthful story at the end of it. The interesting thing about Salem was that there was actually um, there was a lot of hallucinations involved, and it was because there was, uh, believe it or not, there was um, a mold that was growing on oh, the grain. Yes, I'd forgotten 
forgotten about that, yeah. Yeah, yeah there was a mould that was growing on the grain um, and it was causing hallucinations. They think, people think, you know, well, you know, people that have they've looked into the Salem witch trials yeah. uh, think that that's, that's one of the reasons that caused that. But, you know, I mean, you, you, people think that Pendle Hill is haunted and people think that there's witches, you know, flying around all over the place and that, you know, every building um, is haunted by, you know, the ghost of Demdike or what have, or what have you. Um, and that's just simply not the case. Um, and, it, you know, if you go on YouTube, for instance, and just put the Pendle Witches into YouTube, you will get dozens and dozens, hundreds of um, of videos of people going up Pendle Hill in the middle of the night with a, a shaky video camera looking for ghosts, um, you know, and, and sort of really blowing up out of all proportion the, the story of the Pendle Witches and, yeah. and really, really going to town about the... Um, you know the the um, the black magic and all that sort of thing, and and that's really not what happened. And and living locally and, and knowing the story and knowing what actually happened, um, it just sort of winds me up a little bit sometimes when you get yeah. people along. You know, again, it's this paranormal for profit thing. Yeah, but... especially the television um, companies. Yeah. I imagine I remember seeing a. A, a popular British um, ghost hunting show yeah. Um, yeah. went up there and a certain yes. person was trying yes, to wind up the spirits. And, oh, yes. Um, <laughs> although I liked the show, even I yeah. was thinking, come on, this is just ridiculous now. Yeah, well, Tyndale Farm was, was never, were, were, where they were when that particular medium um, uh, was channeling um one of the Pendle witches, I can't remember which one he, which one it was. He, he said he was channeling. Yeah. Um, but they were at a place called Tyndale Farm, and Tyndale Farm was never um, anything to do with with either of the two families. Yeah. Um, one of the families used to live at a place called Malkin Tower, which, um, although there's been a few sites where they believe it might have been, and it, and it wasn't a tower. It was. It was just. A, it was just called Malkin Tower. It was. It was just a, probably an old ramshackle farmhouse, really. Um, yeah. You know. Um, but the um, the actual site of Malkin Tower isn't isn't hasn't been agreed on. There are you know two or three places where it could be, um, but certainly Tyndale Farm, which you know. Had, has never had any um uh has never been been linked with the pendle witch either either of the families or any of the pendle witches at all um yeah. you know but it is um atmospheric <laughs> an, abandoned, an abandoned deserted farmhouse yeah on the side of well in one of the valleys you know overlooked by pendle hill um and so all of a sudden, you know, it's got loads of ghosts in it, and they're all, you know, um, they're all the, the the ghosts of the Pendle witches, and so mm. yeah, you know, it, it it's it does get um, it does get the story does does get blown up out of all proportion, and um, you know, mi uh, misused, shall we say, and and you yeah. know, you you know, used for the wrong reasons. So it was really good to to read um, a local person's account of it in your 
book, The Shadow Man of Accrington, available at Amazon and other high quality retailers. Um, but that was really interesting, actually, because as as somebody who comes from over the border, his boo, um, I hadn't heard the proper story either. So it was really interesting to read that. And yeah. um, well, thank you so much, Craig, for this um, this chat. It's been really interesting and I could carry on all night, but I'm aware that I've taken up loads of your time already. Um, oh, I wondered um, if just before we go, would you just um, tell us about your new podcast that's out? Yeah, well, I've got um, a podcast now, which is called um, Paranormal Pendle. So it's the Paranormal Pendle podcast. Um, I've also got a website as well, which is uh, craigbryant.co.uk. Um, there's a link to the podcast on, on there. Um, I have done uh, five episodes so far, so it's a, a very new podcast for me as well. Uh, very strange being on the other side of um, the interviewer's mic, yeah. <laughs> asking, asking the questions rather than answering the questions. Um, but yeah, hopefully I'll... Um, I'll get some more some more guests. I've had some uh, really interesting guests on there so far. We talk about all sorts paranormal. Um, I've been talking to uh, Paul Sinclair, who's the UFO um, expert from up on the East Coast. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've just the last uh, podcast I did, which was a couple of days ago, uh, is about the Beast of Winter Hill. So that's quite a quite a spooky one. Uh, well, I'm really looking forward to listening to that, actually. And I really enjoyed writing uh, writing your book. I didn't write your book at all. Um, reading your book, The Shadow Man of Accrington, uh, which I could re recommend to uh, anybody who listens to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Craig. It's been absolutely brilliant. I really enjoyed myself. Um, is you. there anything else you'd like to um, add in at the end? Or have I just completely um, questioned you out, do you think? <laughs> No, I think you've probably questioned me out, to be honest with you. <laughs> and that was the end of the interview. Thank you so much, Craig, for coming on to the podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you, and I really hope that we can have you on again in the future. Don't forget to tune in to Craig's podcast, Paranormal Pendle, which can be found on all of the Anchor platforms, and get yourself a copy of his book, The Shadow Man of Accrington, available from all good booksellers. Please email in your experiences to me at paranormal or what podcast at outlook.com or you can record your story straight onto the anchor platform at anchor.fm forward slash paranormal or what podcast forward slash message alternatively simply record your story using your phone's voice recorder and email it to me at paranormal or what podcast at outlook.com Remember, without your experiences, there is no podcast. Well, that's it for tonight. Thanks for tuning in. 
Don't forget to rate and review the podcast for me. Remember to give it five stars if you like it. I really depend on those five star ratings for boosting the listenership for the show. I look forward to snuggling down with you. Some spooky stories, a comfy chair and a tot of something fiery again next time. Take care and remember, together we can figure it out. Good night. Thank you.